Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. While the official Atlantic hurricane season runs June 1st through November 30th, September historically has been the most active month for hurricanes to affect North Carolina, with about 35% of all hurricanes striking the state in that month, including, of course, Hurricane Florence just last year. Now, as a new school year begins, we're going to talk to two education leaders about how these major storms affect our schools and how we can better prepare for the next one. We're also going to talk to a meteorologist on what we might expect for this year's peak hurricane season. Before we tackle our main topics, we open with our headlines, our quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. Calling the Read to Achieve program an expensive failure, Governor Cooper vetoed a bill sponsored by Senator Phil Berger to address shortcomings in the program that was designed by the General Assembly to get North Carolina's children reading at grade level by the end of third grade. Despite spending at least $150 million on Read to Achieve since 2012, the state has actually seen reading scores in third grade decline. In addition to the program's poor results to date, Governor Cooper cited the ongoing controversy over a contract awarded by State Superintendent Mark Johnson to iStation to assess reading literacy. Two months into a new fiscal year without a state budget, Senate Leader Phil Berger announced last week that the legislature will be looking at sections of the budget to seek to pass them through separate bills introduced earlier in the session. Now, House Speaker Tim Moore said they plan to file separate bills this week to implement pay increases for teachers and other state employees. Teachers across the state are now beginning the school year for 2019-2020 without new raises or annual step increases. Finally, state lawmakers have reached a compromise on a bill that will eliminate more than 20 state exams and calls for reducing the number of local tests that are given to students. Now, the new bill doesn't eliminate as many tests as the bill passed by the House. The bill now goes to Governor Cooper. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read about each of these headlines as well as all the other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, we are entering the heart of hurricane season for North Carolina, and before we talk to our two educators about how prepared they are, we thought we would start with a meteorologist on what the experts are saying, and we've got our own Mike Mays from WRLTV who has a lot of experience in covering hurricanes, including just today as we were tracking oh, yeah. um, a, a named storm. So we really are entering the peak the peak, hurricane yeah. season, it sort of feels like it. Yeah, the peak is uh, statistically the 9th and 10th of September. Uh, September is a very active month, and looking at the month of August, it's been unusually quiet. The Atlantic Basin's unusually quiet, and there are a couple of things going on. Uh, there's a lot of dry air in the atmosphere, and there's a lot of shear, so we're not seeing that many storms coming off the uh, coast of Africa. We're thinking that may change in the coming weeks as we get into the peak. Now, I mean, again, I have, seems like some of my, a lot of my jobs over the last 20 years I've had to be it tied into weather. Right. I mean, we got the, the warmer uh, uh, ocean waters. We just heard mm -hmm. that what, July was supposedly the, was the, the hottest, hottest record on the planet, on the planet so, yeah. ever. Yeah. I mean, does that play into the strength of these storms? Well, the thinking is with global warming that's taking place or climate change taking place, the atmosphere is warmer. It can hold more water vapor. 
So when you see these hurricanes come along, they have the potential to dump more rain. Now back in 99 when we had Floyd come on by, we were talking about it being the 100-year flood, and I'm thinking, hey, for the rest of my career here at WRL, we're fine. We're not going to see anything like that. But then when we saw Harvey uh, back in 2016 dump up to 80 inches in some locations across Texas and the Deep South, and then we saw Matthew here in 2016 dumping that much rain uh, that we saw, and then just last year with Florence, we're seeing the same thing happen uh, year after year is we're having another 100-year flood. So with global warming or climate change, the atmosphere is warmer, it can hold more water vapor, and then when you have hurricanes come along, and not even just hurricanes, when you have rain systems come along, they have the potential to dump heavier rain. Yeah, that was, and that was one thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, I, I grew up here in North Carolina, and it seems to me um, that the flooding and the water and the amount of water is now sort of the bigger problem mm-hmm. and, and less so than the wind speed. It was always, I mean, wind speed is still a big right, deal. Right. When I worked for the power company, I mean, how, you know, how, how much wind does it take to knock down a tree and a power line? Storm surges, mm-hmm. it's dangerous for sure, but it doesn't seem to take, like, you, you know, we've had category one hurricanes come on and just sit there mm-hmm. and just, I mean, like Florence last year. Yeah, and that might be a more common thing happening. Now, I was looking at some of the computer model data coming out with Dorian, and what I saw today was disconcerting because it shows at one point on the new American model, there was a major upgrade done to that this year, has it coming to uh, the northern part of Florida and Georgia, and it may sit there for a few days waiting for something to come along and pick it up. So is this a trend that we're seeing? Quite possibly. Um, it's a model, and it's just guidance, so you, it's not set in stone. But could we see that possibly? It's, it's a possibility uh, perhaps next week that, you know, it could sit in one spot, dump a lot of heavy rain, and then move on. Right. Wow. Well, th- to continue the good news about right. the weather, three weeks ago, uh, NOAA uh, updated their 2019 hurricane right. analysis. They had suggested... Uh, you know, that a, we were looking at an average season, and now they're saying significantly an above-average season is much more likely now than what they predicted. Um, do the trends in the data that you watch as a meteorologist, do they, do, are they in line with what you're seeing, too, to well, be more concerned? Uh, so far, I haven't seen that trend. Uh, we look at dry air coming off. But you mentioned August was kind of quiet. Right, right. And we see uh, a lot of dry air or dust coming in off of Africa. That's one of the suppressive features. So we're not sure if that's going to happen or not. There are three outlets that we look at for forecasting hurricanes. NC State across the street comes up with their own forecast. Colorado State comes out with theirs, and NOAA does as well. And NC State is adamant that they're looking for a normal season. Um, Colorado State is saying near normal, but NOAA is the only one that's going with above normal. Now, a difference between Colorado State, they're inputting some European model data into their forecast, so they're confident that their forecast is going to be correct. So you've got three options. The only option for an above normal season is NOAA, so it remains to be seen. Well, and I guess, um, as, you, as, as you know, it only takes one really bad right. storm anyway. I know there's been, was it maybe it was Andrew, but I know there was one. Like, yeah. It was a below average season. Mm-hmm. There was only one. Yeah. but it was devastating yeah, and, and deadly. And seasons are, are, are different every year. I mean, 2005, we had 28 named storms. We had to go into the Greek alphabet to name these storms. Wow. In my lifetime, I've never seen that happen. Well, Hopefully, it'll never happen. You're going to say, well, let's hope not either. Yeah, we, exactly. hope you, we hope you live long and that you also <laughs> don't see any more. Mike Mays, thanks so much for, thanks, the, for, for illuminating it. us, and uh, we appreciate it. And thanks mm-hmm. for, what, for keeping everybody informed nice. and safe. Thanks so much. We're going to take a brief commercial break, and then we'll be back with former State Superintendent Mike Ward and Craven County School Superintendent Megan Doyle. But first, see if you can answer this weather-related question. True or false, all of the top five deadliest hurricanes in U.S. history were Category 5 hurricanes at landfall.
Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Town Bank, serving others enriching lives. Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer false? In fact, none of the top five deadliest hurricanes in U.S. history, including the Galveston hurricane in 1900 and Katrina in 2005, were category five hurricanes when they made landfall. Joining us now are two education leaders who have some experience dealing with storms right here in North Carolina. We've got Dr. Mike Ward. Uh, Mike was the former state superintendent of public instruction, uh, lived through a few storms. We'll, I'm sure that will probably come up when he was in that job. Dr. Megan Doyle, thank you for coming up this week. First day of classes, you are the superintendent thank of you. Craven County Schools right on the coast that, uh, that has seen it. Yes, um, we have last few years. had our fair share for sure. All right, so the reason why I invited both of you on one again, uh, as we were talking about in the first segment, it's we're really entering September. It's historically the busiest hurricane month for North Carolina. Um, and uh, Dr. Ward, you just completed a, um, a report, a research project uh, with the Innovation Project with a group of superintendents. And I think, uh, Megan, you were part of that yes. study, really trying to understand, well, the last two, Hurricane Matthew three years ago, Hurricane Florence last year, the impact on schools, and then the, really the important part is sort of what did you find and, and, and sort of how can we get better prepared. So I guess first of all, what did, the, what did your research entail? So what, you know, how did you sort of gather information? Yeah, so we, we uh, talked to superintendents and principals in six districts uh, that were impacted by Matthew and, and Florence, um, and we, we listened to their perspectives on the impact of the storm in general, but we focused particularly on the impact on kids uh, and on teachers and on the processes of teaching and learning. Right, and so and, and so I know you've 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 actually you know we you actually shared it with us. That's why we had you on the show. You're out talking to other superintendents because, you know, I, I want to understand like we're going to talk about the impact, but just, I mean, just from talking to like Mike Mays a minute ago, I mean, just the impact itself. I mean, you were right there, um, you know, a year ago. It's coming up on the anniversary. Yes. Pretty devastating impact on the community overall, right? Definitely. Uh, in Craven County Schools, we had a thousand students who were displaced from their homes because of flooding into their homes. Over a hundred staff that we know of, we had a harder time getting information from our staff who had damages to their homes because they were so worried about their students, quite frankly. Um, and then, of course, we had damages to every one of our school buildings and facilities. And so that was a very wide-ranging impact for us in a pretty small system on the coast of North Carolina. Yeah, and I know so. we've got some footage that are gonna, and some pictures we're going to be showing during the during these these segments, but you had a lot of, I was asking uh, Mike Mays about it, it seems like now flooding is a bigger feature these days of storms, and so you had a lot of, uh, what was the number, 35 inches of rain? Yes, in Havelock. In Havelock, mm -hmm. that's wild. All right, well, let's talk specifically about impact. I want to talk about the things in your report and get your both of your take on it. I guess the impact for infrastructure and community, kind of scope of sort of those districts, sort of what, what was the, uh, what was it like? Yeah, so the, the impact on buildings, on school facilities uh, in, in the hardest hit areas was, was catastrophic. Um, uh, a lot of schools were, were uninhabitable for, for weeks on end, months on end, and, and some still aren't uh, right. Right. Uh, appropriate for, for, for I mean, I know Jones County is one. Yeah. They just they just opened a brand new great school down there, right. but they, right. I think they had to just simply tear down the other ones. And they, Pamlico as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, impact on facilities was, was huge, but, but we, we quickly zeroed in on the impact on kids. 
Right. And that was what I was going to ask yeah. you. To, and you call, I mean, you talked about it, you know, it's something that's near to us at the public school forum is um, student about the trauma. Sure. I mean, the actual trauma yeah. of, of going through that. I mean, you had to see that in um, Craven. Absolutely. Our hardest hit schools were also our schools that had the highest levels of poverty. Uh, and so you, it's kind of like adding insult to injury. These are students who were already uh, struggling with a number of things, food insecurity and that type of thing, and then to potentially lose their homes was just a devastating blow for them. Right. And um, our schools really had to rally around those children and families. Uh, and it's been difficult because housing has become an issue because of the flooding. We, we live in a very low-lying area in New Bern and Craven County, and it's been difficult to be able to keep those students in their homes and in their community and community schools. Yeah, we saw that. We were, uh, actually, one of the first shows we did on Education Matters back in 2016, was after Matthew and we went down to Robinson County and talked to a great principal there and she's like, we have a lot of kids, we don't even know where they, I mean, they've left because essentially there was at least one, you know, sort of a low income apartment, you know, community that was just gone. I mean, it was literally gone and they said that we don't even, we're, we know we're gonna have families that we will never, we don't know where they ended up. I mean, they're, we think I mean, safety-wise they're somewhere else, but they're in South Carolina, they're in Fayetteville or somewhere else. I guess that's probably another Thing you heard from districts? Yeah, and, and one of the reasons I did this research was was because I did research uh, during a period of time when we were in Mississippi, and that, that period of time included the landfall of Katrina. Okay. So we studied the impact of Katrina on displaced kids, and uh, and what we learned was that the, the traumatic impact of the storm is particularly intense, not just at the time of the storm, but that impact lingers. It lingers for multiple years. So we're faced now with a similar circumstance. We've got displaced youngsters mm -hmm. from southeastern North Carolina and mid-central south North Carolina. Exactly. Yes. And and we know that the effect on behavior and on achievement um, is going to be sustained uh, over a period of multiple years for a lot of these kids. So one of our conclusions from the study is that we need to be about the, the process of being able to sustain support, uh, counseling, and other services to these youngsters over a period, not just of months, but, but of years. Right, as well, we're going we're gonna to take a commercial break in a minute, but I want to, before we go to, talk to me about the school staff. I mean, it's not just the students, the staff are affected because they're in the community too. They're dealing with the same issues. Yeah, and I think that there's been a significant amount of trauma that they've endured as well. Just as an example, several of our bus drivers had to transport um, just citizens from our community to another community. Of those five bus drivers, three of them lost their homes. Mm -hmm. uh, so they came back and were trying to prepare and, and probably didn't prepare as much because they were you know, taking care of others uh, and they lost homes. So we've, again, really tried to rally around them, but there's lingering effects of this. And, and in my message to teachers this week, I've really tried to emphasize we have a plan this time. We're gonna make sure that we work our plan. And we had a plan last time, but we were really not um, prepared for the scope and, and the, the deluge of rain and flooding uh, at, that lasted for almost a week. Right, and how much, and, and the last question for you, um, how much, and before we go to break, how much like teaching and learning time was sort of lost for you? We lost between 19 and 26 days, so what, almost six weeks. What about the rest of the supers? It, it depends on the district, but Onslow County uh, lost even more time. Yes, they did. Um, and that's just one example of, of districts that lost weeks on end um, of instructional time. And, and of the folks who uh, had a conversation with us about their experiences, the, the thing that they mentioned most often as an impact of the storm was lost instructional time, mm -hmm. the, the, the separation of kids from, from their teachers and from the, uh, a learning opportunity. Well, that's, well that's, a, that's a perfect segue. We're going to take a break because now I want to get back. I want to talk about what we actually learned so that we can do better by our students and by our schools 
next time around, and which will hopefully not be this season. But so stick around. We'll be back with more conversation with Mike Ward and Megan Doyle. Welcome back to Education Matters. I was just reading the uh, stats about Hurricane Hazel growing up in Fayetteville. That's all I, mean, uh, that, mm -hmm. I will always remember hearing about the stories about, oh, it's nothing like Hazel. And, I, and fortunately, that's still, I think, mostly true. We've still got with us our state, former state superintendent, Mike Ward, uh, Craven County Superintendent, Megan Doyle. Let's talk about, we just talked about all the like bad stuff that happened, and May's got us all uh, scared about uh, how many storms are coming. Mm -hmm. What did we learn? And let's talk about how we can be better prepared. Give me some, some top line. Um, I'll start with you again with you, Mike. Um, some of the lessons learned. One of the things that I kept seeing over and over again, if I then do a word count, flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. What, what does that mean for both? Do y'all tell me, both of you, what, what does flexibility mean in the context of how a school can better respond? Yeah, so in the wake of a devastating event like this, uh, where you've suffered the kind of impact you have on, on the facilities, impact on kids and teachers, and, and lost instructional time. Um, it, it's not a time for incredible rigidity with respect to policy. You need some flexibility, uh, some, some opportunity to, to do what needs to be done without really, really rigid constraints. All within the scope of the law, but, but still with some flexibility. But maybe not, I mean, like you, but you mentioned the law. I mean, look, I, we, love our, we love our General Assembly and our legislators, but I mean, we know, look, I'm, I'm going to put words in your mouth, calendar, you know, hours in the day, mm -hmm. uh, testing um, things, uh, the, the who you can hire, those things are kind of still expected to be followed, right? Absolutely. And, and I think uh, flexibility really was uh, the thing that we needed the most with budgets, with calendar, with really everything. Um, and there has to be a way for us to be able to do that, right? There are, um, there are ways to have an emergency declaration have far-reaching impacts, and one of those would be in terms of uh, our operation of the schools and how we can move money to just be able to get schools open. Onslow County, for example, had a great deal of struggle because of the catastrophic damage that happened to so many of their buildings. They couldn't start because they couldn't get access to the money they needed. Okay. Uh, and so I think that... They couldn't get access because they couldn't, they couldn't get it or they couldn't move it from one place to another? Well, they couldn't necessarily move it from one place okay. to the other without a, a great deal of um, uh, steps to okay. have happened. Um, and, I, and I also say um, that the amount of money that they needed far surpassed what they had in their coffers. Yeah, no, that was a Wilmington was another area that I went down not long after that storm, and it was pretty amazing, like UNC Wilmington. How many weeks were they out? That's, you just don't expect that, right? And right. it was, and the timing was just terrible for students and teachers and everyone because, uh, what, had, had school been in, in back for, what, a week and a Nine half, days. two weeks? Two weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was almost like starting over again. Today, I, uh, we, we had a, um, a, the governor visited JT Barber, which was one of our hardest hit schools, and one of the things that I um, talked about was the fact that our students left school on June 10th of 2018 and did not come back really until about November. So you think about the summer slide there. It's not summer. It's, it's a full half of a year. Wow. And our students really ended up uh, having a significant impact from that. And one of, the, one of the issues of flexibility that came up a lot with, with the very thing that you, you mentioned um, is a, a concern about how students are going to fare and how schools are going to fare when it comes testing time this mm -hmm. year. Now, to the credit of the superintendents and principals we talked to, every one of them said, we need to administer those state tests. We need to know how our kids did this right. year. 
but we also have a, a fairly um, high stakes accountability system in the state that has impact on on uh, career status, uh, on how the, the designation yeah. of schools. The designation of schools, teacher evaluation, principal pay, a lot Absolutely. of things are now tied to it. That's something we've talked about on this show, these tests. Even if you think that, if, even if you're okay with tests, it's sort of how they're being used, and that's one of them. And when ones. folks look back two or three years from now, they're not going to remember that, you know, Hurricane Florence hit those districts. They're just going to look at the test scores and wonder what happened. Uh, right. And our, you know, yeah. even an asterisk would be helpful. <laughs> just so <laughs> someone can say there, something happened that year, and it, and it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the normal uh, instructional right. year. One thing that I read, and you just, before we started taping, you, re you reiterated this that y'all were really proud of the role that the public school itself played in the community as being sort of a source of connection. Absolutely. One, again, uh, our, our schools that were the hardest hit were also the ones that um, served some of our neediest students. And in those communities, what we found, we learned during the storm was that they didn't have access to information. So they don't have a television. Uh, if they ran out of power, then they didn't have their cell phone to get on Facebook or something like that. So they didn't know where food was. So one of our principals in particular, but every one of our principals, to their credit, um, but one of them in specific at Oaks Road Elementary School, Dr. Eleanor Patrick, she served on average about 600 meals per mealtime, lunch and dinner, to her community, either by having folks drive up to her school or her delivering and having a team of folks deliver into the community. Storm, it was amazing. Storms sometimes are the worst and they also bring out the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the, these respondents talked about incredible things that were done, talked about kids, uh, their students and their teachers hidden the streets in order to help their communities out. They talked about schools serving as shelters. One school served as a hospital, a field hospital in the middle of all this. Um, schools were, were rightly proud of what their folks did to help. Uh, it we, showed how great our students are too. We had high school students out cleaning out houses right. and pulling furniture out. It was amazing. So I want to get, we, we, we only have a little bit of time. You had some, some specific recommendations for the next one. One was expanded use of community facilities, right? Um, you talked about some things like ready-deploy mobile classrooms. That would have been helpful? Yes, absolutely. I would also say any new construction needs to have a generator uh, because if we had power, we could have gone back to school immediately. Uh, and, uh, and for us, it was also getting our devices to our kids. We do have a one-to-one -one program, but we didn't issue them the day of the storm, and we should have. Yeah. And, so, and that, so that was really trying to get things back to normal as possible, as quickly as possible to students, and one of them was getting them back connected. It's like it may sound like a break is fun, but... It, after a while, I know it's like, you know, if you don't have power and you're not connected with your school, you're not going to get better. So, yeah. well, there's lots of good reports. We're going to have a copy of it on our website so people can find it. Mike Ward, Megan Doyle, thanks so much for being here. Thank you and so much for having let's us. Let's pray for a, uh, a quiet hurricane season. There we go. Yes, <laughs> for sure. After the break, this week's final word. As I was preparing this week's show, reading the report from Dr. Ward, I was struck, how, again, how often the idea of flexibility or lack thereof came up again and again in regards to our state's public schools. Dr. Ward's study found many things educators say would help them prepare and recover from hurricanes, but they can't because of state laws and regulations. Now, two weeks ago on our show, if you saw it, we featured Rowan Salisbury School Superintendent Dr. Lynn Moody. She's leading the state's first renewal school district, meaning every school in the district was granted charter-like flexibility when it comes to things like staffing, budget, school calendar, just to name a few. You heard some of those. Many of these same areas educators in eastern North Carolina decided they could use after a major storm. So why do state lawmakers grant all this flexibility to private voucher schools and charter schools that don't even have the same kinds of transparency and accountability as traditional public schools, 
and then tell our public schools to follow every requirement, including hours in the day, what date they must stop and start, and restrict state dollars so a superintendent like Megan Doyle can't decide locally areas they think additional resources are needed. It doesn't make sense to me. So hopefully one day we can be on the show and we can talk about someone referring to they want public school-like flexibility. So that's it for this week's show. Make sure you tune in next week and we'll see you soon. Thank you.